Hello, and welcome to Table Topics, the general advice and discussion podcast from the RPG Academy. I am Michael, and this is Table Topics number 64, Epiphany. In this episode, Caleb and I sit across the virtual table with James D'Amato and Kat Murphy from some of my currently favorite podcasts. They are part of the One Shot Podcast, the Critical Success Podcast, and the newly launched Campaign Podcast. They're all fantastic, and I recommend them all very highly. But we spoke to them specifically about Epiphany, which is a role-playing game that they are co-creating, and they are in the process of doing some playtesting and soon will be uh, coming out with a beta test packet uh, with the thoughts of a future possible Kickstarter to get the game actually out on the market. Uh, It was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed spending some time with them, and I hope you guys will enjoy listening. So here is Table Topics, episode number 64, Epiphany. Welcome to Table Topics, the general advice and discussion podcast from the RPG Academy. I am Michael, and I have brought along with me, as usual, my favorite co-host and yours, the Caleb G. Caleb, how are you doing tonight, sir? I am wishing I was at least a half-elf for that goddamn (laughs) racial immunity against sleep. Holy shit, I am tired. It's been a rough stretch for you at work, I understand. But we're gonna, we are we have a great episode lined up, so uh, you can power through this, and then you can skip work tomorrow. I'll give you permission. Oh, good, good. I, I don't have to waste my day off then. <laughs> Correct. Uh, now, we use these table topic episodes to try to give some advice and share some wisdom from our many years of running RPGs. But not all of the advice we give is going to work for every game, every player, or every situation. But there is one piece of advice that we do think is pretty universal. And Caleb, what is that piece of advice? As long as you're having fun, you're doing it right. That is correct. So no matter what system you play or what edition or what rules you use, don't use, or misuse, if you're having fun, you're doing it right. And speaking of doing it right, Caleb, we have two amazing guests for our show tonight. James D'Amato and Kat Murphy uh, from not one or two, but three of my current favorite podcasts are joining us tonight. Kat, James, how are you guys doing tonight? Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you so all. much. I'm doing all right. How about you, James? Oh, I'm doing great. <laughs> thank you so much for having us on. Oh, definitely yeah, our great. pleasure. <laughs> now, if you guys aren't familiar, James and Kat are part of the One Shot podcast, uh, the Critical Success podcast, and the recently launched Campaign podcast. And I'm not blowing smoke. I love all three of them. I think they are amazing. Uh, your guys' one-shot episodes are some of the, and we use the correct, the incorrect term, funniest, or most funny, however you say it, <laughs> episodes. They crack me up continuously, and uh, I started from the beginning, and I'm almost caught up. Uh, I think I'm on the feng shui episodes now, somewhere in the 60s, so there's, I'm about 10 behind, but that's all been within like a, a month or two. Oh, Very well, cool. Yeah, thank you so much for doing that. That's uh, We really love the feng shui, sheng shui, feng shui episodes, too. So. Yeah, I've heard a, a lot about those, and so I was very interested. Uh, we do something similar. We call them the trials, and it's part of our Patreon campaign that we try out different games. Because we talk about a lot of stuff, but primarily we're a D&D podcast. I mean, that's the majority of what we talk about. A little bit of Fate, a little bit of Star Wars, but mostly D&D. So we are trying to organize some one-shot games. We, we got Numenera in the works. Uh, we did uh, Dungeon World not too long ago. We're uh, probably going to do an Everyone is John here soon. Ooh. So, and that was one of the ones that came up from a listener like the feng shui or feng shui, however you pronounce it. I'm con- from Kentucky. I'm sure it's wrong either way. 
Um, so that's one of the ones I was interested in. And um, so, yeah, so just I was listening to that. But I did think it was interesting because your one-shot episodes, I mean, they're just crazy and they're hilarious. Absolutely hilarious. But some of the funny things that happen happen because of the players basically taking control and saying things that in a campaign setting might be like troublesome. So I'm pretty interested to see how your campaign podcast grows since you're going to try to do it more serious. So I've only got a couple episodes into that. I haven't really heard anything yet that was like, oh, uh, but I'm interested to see how you rope everyone together, Kat, and keep it somewhat on track. Sure. What? Yeah, that's that's funny because I feel like we have still fallen into that pattern of, you know, Johnny who plays Lenik on campaign, uh his still primary plan is to uh <laughs> solve any situation by getting captured. Yes. That's his that's, <laughs> I'm not too yeah, that's something that I, I'm actually really interested in talking about if we if we have time at some point. But I, I find the the dynamics in, of control within that system fascinating. Oh my god. Uh, I think it's really well suited to having a bunch of improvisers around, especially if they're if they're committed to the idea that this is something that I'm controlling and also that they have a lot of player agency within. Uh, then it it could be something really cool. Oh I yeah, think- I think I mentioned before we're doing a, an actual play of Star Wars as well. I really like the way the boosts and the disadvantages work, and how you can help each other out that way, and how the dice kind of tell the story. And like, if I give you an advantage because of X, and then the only reason I succeeded was because that blue die was the last success I needed, that kind of tells me that my help is what caused the success. And I just, I really like that aspect. And I would actually like to try to hack it and maybe play a D&D version just to see how it would work. I so said, before we got too, too far along, uh, we do like to start our episodes with uh, what we call Gamer's Lexicon. Uh, Caleb, what, what term or phrase or, or word are we going to define tonight? Tonight, kids, the word of the day is narrative control. That's two words. (laughs) Well, I feel like we have two experts on the podcast tonight. So, James Cat, would you guys feel comfortable explaining to our audience what narrative control is? Absolutely, Cat. Do you want to take it or should I? I'd like to start. Shall shall I start and then you'll you'll wrap it all up with a bow? Okay. Uh, in in my eyes, narrative control is uh, okay. It's it's kind of twofold. One, it's like who who owns the vision of the story, and two, way more importantly, who decides what the outcome of a decision is, not the decision itself, because decisions are made by both players and game masters. But the outcome of a decision and how it affects the world—that's what I think narrative control is. James, you? That's interesting. I see it more as ownership of the story. Uh, For instance, players in a game have ownership over their character. That means that they determine what their character does. And if a GM is saying, well, your character does this, that GM is crossing a line of their responsibilities. The player decides what their character does at any given time. However, they don't get to decide what happens to their character or the world around their character. That's owned by the GM. So narrative control is split between those two things. That's really interesting. I think that uh, Will Will Heinmarch would absolutely disagree with you. He just wrote a really cool thing about um, railroading and the different ways that we railroad. And one of the useful ways is in pulling, helping someone, especially a shy person, through a situation by taking the gist of what they they want and then shaping that into an action and saying, you do pull someone out of the building and you say the scene. And James, you're, you do this a lot uh, on the show. So I, 
I think that that's, it's that's different than making a decision for a character. Providing providing uh, details or expanding on what something somebody else does is different than creating a brand new action. Only players should have the ability to create new action, whereas only the GM should be able to. Well, not only the GM, but uh, players should ha- should have 100% control over their action. And GMs can certainly step in and suggest things or expand on things, but at a certain point the player should be able to say, no, that's not what I do and that's not how I handle it. I let those people burn in that building because I'm evil. I agree. So that's what I would call player agency, the deci- the ability to make a decision. And I'd stick by my narrative control is uh, what the outcome of that decision is. That's 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 really, really interesting. I, I, I think agency and control are tied up in it, but I, I guess ultimately I would look at it Look at it as uh, an extension of canon. You know, when we think of what's canon in comic books, uh, looking back on a situation, whomever uh, said the thing that everyone agrees is true had narrative control. Yeah, that's kind of like what my vision of narrative control would be, that I am a pretty improv-heavy GM. Now, I don't have improv training, so I'm not necessarily good at it, but like basically I'm lazy, so I make up a lot of stuff rather than prepping. <laughs> so during the game, I may just decide that there is a tavern keeper nearby who lost his arm in the war and he's a one-armed tavern keeper but if the player is improving and they come up with an idea that says well you know i know a guard you know two weeks ago i got caught breaking in and he let me go and he and i are friends that's not something as a dm i knew about ahead of time if i allow the player to create that fact that as you said becomes canon that i do now have a guardsman that may be easily bribable that my characters need I'm allowing them to have narrative control in that situation. Mm-hmm. And it is a line. At, one, at some point, you have to step in and say, well, actually, that, that couldn't have happened because of stuff you don't know about. But I try as often as possible. If a player says, I, you know, I, my cousin Vinny works at the DMV, okay, fine, we'll go talk to cousin Vinny and just move on with it. Agreed. And I think some systems are built to do that so much better than others. Some really care about giving uh, narrative control to players and helping them build out that environment. And I think that's a, a really cool direction games are games are headed. Yeah, well, and also not to discount those uh, that I believe systems that Professor Crunch here would, uh, <laughs> would like. And there is something to be said for keeping those old-school power structures in play, too. I mean, the reason people still play old-school games is because they work. But I am excited about the innovation that we're seeing in the indie game circuit where people are creating these uh, games where narrative control is more vague and less rigid. I think there's a barrier to entry. That's you know one of the things that D&D gets harped on a lot, that unless you have a cousin or an older brother that teaches you how to play, it can be intimidating to pick up the DMG. It's full of charts and maps and tome. And if you can have a game that comes in three sheets of paper on a PDF and it basically says just have a fun time making up stories and eventually roll a D10 to see who wins, it's easier to get people to play. You know, Fate and Fate Accelerator are great examples. That is an interesting idea. But be, like right now, like we've had systems like that for a while. But D&D is still the most popular game of, this, of its type in the world. I think uh, rigid power structures are something that a lot of people are familiar with and expect. And I would somebody... say comfortable. I wouldn't say familiar. I would say comfortable. A lot of people oh, perhaps, are comfortable role playing or or improving. Well, so not, they not like to that. be able to say, "My D twenty means this." If we look at the number one fear, you know, public speaking, uh, people don't like being put in positions of authority that they're not 
prepared for, that they don't feel they have ownership of. But when you give somebody a rigid system and go, here, this is what you're expected to do, and they have a bunch of rules to tell them what to do, I, I found it uh, some people, um, and even a lot of people that I've met, have come to the table uh, and been able to handle a system that is less freeform more easily. However, somebody like me, I don't hold as much truck with those rules. So, and again, I think that goes back to uh, one of our previous guests. Uh, we had Seth Polanski. He was a executive producer on the movie of Dyson Men. He said basically, role playing games are fun. So if you're not having fun, you're doing it with the wrong group. So you may be in a group that goes one way or the other on the spectrum, and it may not just be a fit for you and your personality type. Uh, but yeah, for me, I'm kind of in the middle. I like the rules, but most of the time I'm going to not use them if they're not what I want to do. But we've gotten way into left field. Um, the <laughs> reason, no, no, that's, that's uh, perfectly fine. But the reason we brought you guys on is we wanted to talk about Epiphany, which is a game that you and James have been working on uh, developing, and you've done some playtesting, and it's, it's starting. That soon it will be out in the public a little bit more um, readily available. Now, Professor Crunch um, is our rules master, and he has read through the playtest pack, packet that you guys provided. So at this point, I'm going to kind of let him take over because I usually talk the most, as I'm sure you've already figured out. I mean, he's going to ask you guys some questions and we're just going to try to learn a little bit about Epiphany and hopefully some of our audience might be interested and maybe could help you guys out with a play test or whatever future plans you have for releasing the game they can be involved in. So uh, Caleb, a.k.a. Professor uh, Crunch, take it over, man. Wait, wait, this might be a monumental moment. Are you actually throwing it to me? On the show? <laughs> well, Am I getting the throw? I Am actually I did that in? once before, and then I immediately took back over. So That's <laughs> what I'm saying. I, I, need a, I need a trophy. I think we need to make this a, a national day or something. Red letter fumbling date. the throw, Caleb. You are fumbling the throw. <laughs> yep. Maybe handle. that's why I don't throw I it. You got to run with throw. the ball. I can't handle the throw. I quit. I'm done. I rolled one. <laughs> I'm out of here. Narrative control. Is... <laughs> I'm giving narrative control back to you, Michael. No. Okay. Shut up. I got this. So, <laughs> uh, James and Kat, it is awesome to have you guys on the show with us. Uh, Michael already said it, but thank you so much. We are both huge, huge fans, and seeing you guys here in our pretend interview loft is super, super cool. Aw. So, uh, yeah, Michael said we are going to talk a little bit about Epiphany. I did have the pleasure of reading through the rule book about a billion times until it finally sunk into my uh, sleep-deprived brain, and I really, really like it. Before we get into the specifics of what it is, though, I want you guys to tell our listeners what is Epiphany. Pidget, James! So Epiphany is a role-playing game that's based on films like Groundhog Day and stories like King Midas. Uh, it's a game that centers around a single flawed protagonist who, over the course of a story and some magical realism, changes into a good person or a hero. Uh, there's only one player that fills the traditional role of player in this game, and we call that person the protagonist. And there are three game masters called Fates who sort of rule over this uh, protagonist's life. If the setup sounds familiar, uh, there is a system called Becoming that also has three GMs called Fates. Uh, they are very different games, um, but for our more 
Epicurean players out there, I did want to point out there is that similarity. But yeah, the, the game centers around fighting over agency and narrative control. Each fate has a different vision for the protagonist in their journey, and the protagonist wants to maintain their free will and, uh, you know, shape their own destiny. I miss anything, Kat? I think, so So you got that the player size is four standard. It's also a game that we really wanted to be able to be played over the course of an evening, so it's, it runs between four and six hours. Ideally. Mm-hmm. So, essentially... When we're playing Epiphany, we have a struggle of control between these different agencies. Mm -hmm. And we've kind of flipped the GM screen. So the majority of people are on the opposite side of the screen. The main players are taking control, trying to lead the protagonist down one path or another. This style of storytelling draws a lot from really classic story. I mean, you you mentioned Groundhog's Day, but when I read this, when I was looking through it, I thought of a lot of things immediately. Christmas Carol, I thought of classic Greek mythologies where the fates are leading the destined hero down one path or another. Was your intention to try to be able to play out these certain concepts, these certain stories, or was it just the general idea of the the focus these larger agencies have on the single person. So the focus is definitely to tell out those specific kinds of stories. That's uh, James and I love them. It started out with pretty much, let's make a system to play Groundhog Day, and then turn into wait, but but let's also make a system to play Freaky Friday or The Page Master or any of those zany movies from the eighties and nineties where magical realism dramatically changes one person's life, or in some cases, two people's. And then we started thinking about more classic stories down the line, just like you mentioned, James said Midas, uh, you mentioned a bunch of Greek things. We love that. We, we love that like subtle influence of, uh, of, as we said, magical realism, just a slight change, uh, and how it emotionally shapes a person. Yeah, I I think I, I originally had the idea for a game that did uh, Groundhog Day after reading, reading. Actually, this is really embarrassing. You're really gonna reading, do this? Oh no! Yeah, I was I was reading a fan fiction where somebody had mashed up uh, Groundhog Day with another franchise, and I was like, oh, that's really interesting. How does I I really like Groundhog Day. It's a shame that there's only one story like Groundhog Day. And whenever I encounter something, well, this is the only version of this thing, uh, let's make more of it, I want to turn it into a role-playing game because that's something that I can immediately get that story gratification out of. So I went to Kat and was like, Kat, we need to make a game about this so we can have more Groundhog Day. And Kat's like, yes. <laughs> so we together we you know looked for different things that were like Groundhog Day. And we stumbled across this genre that especially Hollywood loves, where you have this sort of reform story with a weird bit of magical realism that plays with time or plays with, uh, you know, dysmorphia or, you know, somehow warps somebody. Right, and we see it distinct from fantasy because it's not a long hero's journey, right? That there's there aren't multiple components, they're not leaving any part of their world really to gain skills to come back into deal with their problems in the world. Instead, it's actually just happening to them. 
Yeah, so this is, and like, obvious, and the genre always ends when the hero comes to a realization or, you know, reaches an epiphany. So there are a lot of movies like this. Uh, Stranger Than Fiction is another favorite that uh, we have. And we've just taken to calling the genre epiphany films or epiphany stories. And that's what they're about. Like when they don't end tragically, they end with an epiphany. <laughs> I want to jump in there just for a second. Um, Caleb and I have a pretty established relationship, Professor Crunch, Professor Fluff. How does that work with you two? Or, or is one of you more of the mechanics person, the other story, or is it a little bit more mixed? Okay. Uh, uh, I studied Shakespeare in school and philosophy, and James studied political philosophy. Uh, <laughs> and so you're both unemployable. Yes. Well, huh? That's 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 a good. That's a really well, good point. Hard edge unemployable. <laughs> uh, I, Cat, I, and I are both story people. Um, we complement each other in that we like the same things and we propel each other towards the same goal. Cat is a little bit better at uh, individual project management and a lot a bit better at things like grammar and whatnot. And I'm good at making sure we hit deadlines and uh, making sure that we try everything. In terms of crunch, though, I, we both have a solid appreciation of crunch. That's something both of us started playing D&D together in college, and we immediately, this, it was 3.5, and we both took in every single source book and started making, like, with our maybe second or third characters, extremely broken, disgusting monstrosities. We are ridiculous power gamers. Uh, <laughs> it's not okay. But, but absolutely. That's the best part. The first, the first step is admitting you have a problem. <laughs> there is no problem. Michael, you go sit in the corner. Yeah, there's, there's no problem because we decided to get good at every other aspect of the game, too. It wasn't satisfying to just... Because we, we, our, our school was full of power gamers. If you have a power gaming GM, it's uh, going to inspire a bunch of power gaming players so that they can keep up with the story and not get their characters murdered. Uh, so that was just sort of a given. But we noticed a lot of the other power gaming people around us were sacrificing the story and the fun moments that we like to indulge in the game. So we just sort of built ourselves into the type of people who could play games with anyone so our game wouldn't fall apart when you know, somebody wasn't jumping in and talking around the campfire. So James and I are just kind of getting to a point now where we're getting really analytical about mechanics, we're learning game design, and we're trying to match we're trying to match the mechanics to, you know, to the feel of the system, to the sort of thing that we'd find really interesting to do mechanically for each system that we're interested in creating. So this one isn't as heavy as other systems. Yeah, um, and this one has mechanics that are tailored to match the thematics. One thing that we noticed in these stories is they swing back and forth uh, as far as control, especially between the protagonist and the world that's beating them down. If you look at Groundhog Day specifically, there are, like, initially, Phil is overwhelmed by the idea of having to relive the worst day of his life over and over again. But very quickly after that initial shock, he gets up and he uses the time loop powers to sleep with a waitress or steal a bunch of money or indulge these ridiculous fantasies that he's always had. And the movie sort of swings back and forth between is, is the 
protagonist driving the story? Are they comfortable with their situation? Or is the world beating them and reshaping them into a new person? And so we made our dice mechanic to reflect that. Cool. Well, let's, let's dig into the mechanics a little bit. You guys brought this up when we were first talking about this at the, at the top of the show, but there are a lot of, I would say, thematic similarities in mechanics between what you guys are working on in Epiphany and some other things out there, uh, like Fate and Everyone is John, those kind of more rules-light, story-heavy role-playing games. Story games. Yep. Story games. So when you were working on Epiphany, did you guys sit down and look at the rules you liked and look at the rules you didn't like or just cherry-pick the bits of the other games or did you just nope. kind of... <laughs> yeah, not at all. We didn't, we didn't know that story games existed when we first started working on the rules. for like This was way back at uh, the beginning of One Shot where yeah. we had played a bunch of traditional games. Uh, like Shadowrun was one of our favorites. Uh, Feng Shui was... Or Feng Shui, I should say, is one of the first really rules-like games that we ever played. And so we, we just loved all of these other really rules-heavy games, and we were like, it's a shame that everybody plays Dungeons & Dragons, but so few people that we know in our immediate friend circles play all of these other great games. So we were at the start of our journey where we were going to try every system, but we, we weren't there yet. The dice mechanic uses D6s because we like Shadowrun. And that's where the similarities to any system that we knew about at the time ended. We thought we we, we thought like, oh man, we, we've separated it into acts. What a what a cool innovation that'll that'll have such a neat effect on games. And like the week, the next week, uh, we found <laughs> Fiasco. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, we we also thought multiple GMs. Like this is this is a really cool idea. And you know, I a while later found Becoming and there are a lot of games that have that sort of shared creative agency between people so these mechanics sort of popped out of our head but it's I think because it's an obvious way to go about achieving a certain goal separating it into an act structure where one act works differently from another act is if you have a story that needs to progress forward you want to reflect stories that have already laid down that foundation, and that's what acts do. Absolutely, yeah. The the focus from what I've been able to pick up from reading through the document is is very much about building that momentum to go through the acts of the story. It, it really does, in my mind, accurately portray the, the pacing we would see in a great movie like this. Since Groundhog Day is really the core inspiration, I think, uh, of this game. As you are moving through Acts 1 and 2 to get into the, the climax, you see the pacing pick up. You see those swings of power become a little more dynamic. They become more important as the protagonist is starting to understand more of what's going on and trying to maybe fight against it or maybe work with it depending on the characterization. Yes, yes, that is most certainly what we were going for. So I'm actually glad that that came through in that alpha packet that we sent. 
I, I really dug the alpha packet because I liked those uh, goofy little skeleton clip arts. Ah, our public <laughs> domain skeletons! Yay! That, I feel like they should be part of the final product because <laughs> they're pretty awesome. In, in uh, he, What he's referring to in the alpha packet, uh, which I don't know if this is going to be preserved when we move to the beta packet, we don't have any art, and there's a lot of holes in the layout, so we filled those holes with public domain skeletons. And uh, there's you know, some we, slick ones. I like that little uh, like deer. That deer yeah. skeleton is pretty rock. Did we get the chameleon there. in there? That chameleon was. Tiny. He's he's like the final page, I think. Yes. <laughs> well, I I thought it was really fitting because for some reason for me it evoked that really kind of classic. Shakespearean three witches, three fates, exercising this life-to-death kind of struggle. And they were just really groovy pictures. And I was like, oh, these are cool. So, yeah. <laughs> the, the core mechanic is all about rolling dice because we're playing role-playing games and you got to roll some dice for the most part. In general, with Epiphany, you, got, you give uh, the players uh, a dice pool, a bunch of D6s, and those dice change hands as the game progresses, and it it all boils down to kind of opposed roles. How did that come about? Did it just seem to be the most natural way to embody this swing of power between the fates and the protagonist? I usually have fun in games when I'm rolling dice, and so the, the reason I chose to do opposed roles was... I wanted every time something was happening to be an exciting time. So every role of the game, I think except for two two different types of roles, every single person at the table can roll if they want to roll. I used a dice pool mechanic from Shadowrun because I liked, and it's not exactly like Shadowrun, but I like rolling a lot of dice. But I also liked the way in Shadowrun that you work with hits and misses, so you're not spending time adding up a bunch of dice. So I wanted the math to be very simple, but I also wanted the roll to be very dramatic. You should feel powerful when you're rolling. Also, since you're doing like blinds against each other, there's an element where you can fake each other out that has this sort of family game appeal to it. I don't know. My mother was a a really vicious Uno player who would cheat incessantly. And uh, that's fun. That's, uh, in doing some, a smaller game with a group of friends, I like having that kind of sinister aspect to it. And it really easily works into a, uh, a blind dice-bidding mechanic. Yeah, the, the other the, I will point out that we do have uh, dice cups. They're a part of the game in that your opponent doesn't know how many dice you're rolling until you actually roll the dice. So you can goad them into bidding more dice. And the reason you would want to do that is after they finish the roll, uh, you the, the dice that they rolled will pass to you, and the dice that you rolled will pass to them. Uh, so there's this sort of resource management thing where you know if you spend resources on something you think is important, your opponent, quote-unquote, is going to have access to those resources immediately afterwards. And the reason that I put that in um, or is that Kat and I, although we are hideous power gamers, are not really math people. And I sort of resented that a lot of the cool builds that I could do 
were outclassed by more boring builds that I saw in D&D. Um, I didn't like that you could just, by simply working out the statistics, you could own the system. So in the game, I designed it to be more dependent on social engineering. Is If, if you are a good bluffer, uh, sort of like Werewolf, Kat and I played a ton of uh, Werewolf, the party game, and... It, yeah, be real. Ahead. We we kind of played Werewolf to the point that people who crunch games break games. I think we knew all of all of our sixty member club way too well, such that we knew who the werewolf was. Round one, every game, because that's the sort of social engineering stuff that gets us excited. Yeah, so we we wanted the game to be able to like it, you know it does if you know math good you have a little bit of an edge in the fight, but you really need to know people and be able to work with people and work around people to get what you want. Hmm. Okay, I like that, because you are building into Epiphany the importance of playing socially. I I think one of the stigmas that role-playing games carry is that very stereotypical group in the basement, everyone is sitting around the table, hunched over their character sheets, specifically Michael's basement, uh, <laughs> because it's terrifying. And the the role-playing games, I think, are really in a, a period of evolving right now. Uh, they are becoming more and more present in society. They're becoming more accepted. They're becoming more popular. I mean, we're seeing an exponential growth in simply the knowledge of that a role-playing game is more than Dungeons and Dragons. But you're all telling a story together, you're all working together, and you're all socially enjoying this story that you're creating as you go. In, uh, in general, with, with games evolving like this, with this new dynamic happening, I mean, this is kind of a really above-the-table, wide-scale question, but, I mean, what do you guys think is kind of down the road for for our chosen hobby here. Oh man, I I hope <laughs> that well, video games are really catching on. Everybody's playing them. My mother plays Bejeweled Twist. You know, that's sort of that uh such that the game the such that the term gamer is starting to go away within that community because it's just such a large community that it doesn't even make sense to peg it down to a specific group of people. And I I think it's going to be a lot harder for us to get there because we're analog, but it's starting to kind of happen. And man, I wish I wish we could just break through the term gamer at some point in the future and just have this be a type of game that everyone plays. Well, that's sort of what happened. What's happening in video games already? Um, that's what I was saying. Yeah. Well, like uh, when Keith Baker uh, came to visit our school and give a talk because our club managed to con the administration into giving us money to have that happen. Let's be real. I did that. Yeah, I con the administration. That's true. There's 100% Cat Murphy presidency right there. When Cat lured Keith into our web, uh, he talked a little bit about uh, gaming in... Was it Norway, or was it just... It was one of the Nordic countries. It was one of those Nordic countries um, where role-playing games are just sort of a thing, and, like, LARPs are a thing that you did when you were younger. And it's that sort of thing that, like, board games, like Monopoly... Now, everybody in America, oh, yeah, I played Monopoly when I was a kid, when I was a kid you know. 
I'm not too into it now, but we played games. That's where role-playing games are there. That is where I hope the future of role-playing games is for America, where, yeah, they're, they're a thing that it's not a specialized thing that most people associate right away. It's like, oh, yeah, I did that at one point. I'm not still doing that, or I don't live or die by that, but I, I don't think it's weird that people would do it. Or you do still do that, and everyone still does that way more passionately, which takes us in the other direction. If any company is looking to start up uh, a giant, giant LARP that uh, that's resource-heavy, like uh, in the movie The Game, James and I are extremely hireable. <laughs> oh, yeah. If you want to blend fantasy and reality, we do that all the time. We're your people. But also, I, like, I see a lot of hope in uh, companies like Roll20. Shout out to the great guys and gals there. Uh, they have set up a situation where it is conceivable that somebody could come home from work and go, I want to play a role-playing game tonight and find a game and start playing just as easily and casually as somebody would play a video game. That is the real deal right there. That is where I see the future of the hobby on the adult level right now, and hopefully soon that will proliferate to every level. As these games become more and more a part of culture, I want it to be easier and easier for people to play. And because communication is getting so powerful and ubiquitous, I think it's only a matter of time before role-playing really seizes on to that. And with Roll20, we're already seeing that happen. And then if I may add one more venue that I'd really like this to take. A lot of what James and I do when we construct stories is kind of making extended improv forms. He's the improv improviser in the city, not me. I've watched a lot of his performances. And like the, the schools here do some cool things, and they teach some really neat forms, but those forms all serve comedy, whereas I think it would be really, really cool to see that theater that has nothing to do with comedy inherently and is mostly about organically crafting a story with a set form that that plays out like a game. Yeah, and and uh, we, like there are dramatic improv forms, but they're sure. not they're specialized things that you know you're going to see a dramatic improv form. Nobody associates improv with anything except for comedy. Uh, I would really love to see role-playing games used as a form of entertainment especially as a person who is specifically trying to that? capture the magic of that and export it. Uh, and I, you know, I, like our numbers and certainly the numbers of shows like yours or uh, Crit Juice or Happy Jacks or any of those role-playing public radio, all of those are a proof that it is possible to take the stories in these games and present them to an audience and have that audience enjoy it and engage with it. So I, I see role-playing games going places. I think we're in the middle of a boom, and that boom is going to keep shooting up. I completely agree with you. <clears throat> my my hesitation there is, much like any time there's a boom, you're going to get an explosion of a lot of stuff, but a lot of it's also not going to be very good. Um, so you're going to have a proliferation of things that aren't very good, and you're going to have people that get, kind of get confused by having a hard time finding. You know, Eventually, the cream will rise to the top, as they say, but I think because there's so much right now, there's a lot of mud in the water. Uh, but I did was, what did you guys think about? I know tabletop, obviously Will Wheaton, sort of the the icon in a lot of ways for what we do. 
there's going to be a role-playing specific version of tabletop that comes out this year based off of their funding. I don't think any of the details have been released as far as like what game, if it's going to be an ongoing campaign, a bunch of one shots. But I think that might be one of the things that could help us as well is you actually have a sort of a TV show that is about role playing games. Yep. Uh, yeah. He won the Diana Jones Award for a reason. Yeah. I mean, is there a big stretch from taking that to a sitcom set in D&D? Like, you know, like instead of having uh, the central perk and the friends sitting around there, it's a, the you know, Watwood Tavern and you got Fighter and the Wizard. And, the, and, and basically it's just like the everyday lives of fantasy characters. I, I could see that happening right now in a small space, <laughs> but, but is there a chance for that ever being mainstream? Like right next to Big Bang Theory, you have Dungeons and Dragons, the sitcom? It would be just about as good as Big Bang Theory is. So. <laughs> That's the most popular TV show in the world right now. Yeah. yeah. Whether you like it or not, a oh, lot of people do. Yeah, well, I mean, a lot of people like terrible things. <laughs> fine. That's fine. Like Once Upon a Time. Everyone loves that show. Everyone loves That's it, yeah. crazy. It's, you know, like, see, I, I think, yeah, there's potential for that. Uh, whether, like, I'm sure it'll be fine. You know what? I think anything that <laughs> Well, gets... I think any exposure is good, right? Yeah. That's the, I was, I, I've been trying to explain what I do to my mother forever, <laughs> forever. It's, it's been a really long time. And until I explained Epiphany to her, I don't think she got it. And it's just because she didn't get that type of storytelling. But as soon as she got that, it was people telling a story collaboratively. She, like, something about the structure of this specific game clicked with her, and I was like, oh, well, a lot more games like that are starting to come out. You know, that, that's the things like Fiasco exist, and I think that she'd get them, and could potentially even want to do that. So, if we get a Big Bang version of D&D, you know, if, if, we have a, if Wizards of the Coast makes a sitcom, oh man, that would be amazing. Um, I would watch the Wizards of the Coast. So would I. Uh, um, I, I think it would be nothing but good. Because I'd love to have my mom do this. You know, I think she'd bring something interesting to it. I think a Watsy television show would get really confusing because every other year they would totally change how the sitcom worked. <laughs> I would watch the hell out of that. Are you kidding me? Oh, and, and then you would you would have fights in the streets. That I'm a season <laughs> one fan. I'm a season three fan. Oh. Season one is shit. And You're pitching <laughs> genius to me right now. This yeah. is amazing. Well, you know what? As long as I get a, a producer credit, I don't care. <laughs> um, <laughs> but going off of something you just said, Kat, it's interesting that games like Epiphany that are all about collaboratively telling a story instantly appeal to a wider audience. At our mini Academicon that we just had a couple weekends ago, I ran Dread for the first time, and uh, one of my players, who is a longtime friend of Michael's and a great gamer, he told me, my wife will not play role-playing games, but she would love the hell out of Dread. So it's an interesting shift in dynamic. We're doing the same thing. We're still playing a game. We're still role-playing. But it's the... I don't know. What what do you guys think draws people to it? Is it the different rules? Is it the fact that it's a story? They... I think we're explaining it better. I think that all of the genre expectations that are heaped on the early versions don't make it accessible to people who used to be really scared to be called nerds. Mm. Like, on one hand, nerd people aren't really scared of being nerds on, anymore, 
but they are still afraid of not knowing something that people more experienced possess. And games that don't take place within a heavy set genre just remove all of that and just allow the essence of role playing with your friends to come through. That's or what maybe I think. maybe even different genres speak to different people too. Mm, because that's a good point. Plenty of people that I know that could not care about Dungeons and Dragons at all, but would love Shadowrun to the point of like feeling a uh, physical feeling from it. And it's the same thing. You're still a party of murder hobos just once you're in the future and one year in the past. You know, it's uh, the same thing. <laughs> Having those different genres and different types of stories that speak to different people, I think, help the games proliferate as well. James, you just named our television show. Murder Hobos. <laughs> Murder Hobos! <laughs> <laughs> Put it on the shirt. Make it official. Brilliant. Well, I also think it's interesting that within the past couple years, we've also seen an upswing in popular media of re- very, very specific genres. Mm-hmm. We're, we're in that powerhouse era of comic books. We're, we're we're still bleeding into the urban fantasy realm with Supernatural and Constantine and, and things like that. We haven't had that swing really into hard sci-fi. We haven't had that swing into true fantasy. But more people are okay with goofy people doing goofy things. And, but it's also not for a lack of trying. I think whenever there is a good movie that like is of a particular genre... That is when you see that happen. I mean, X-Men 2 and Spider-Man did so much to make superheroes a thing. Uh, I think after Guardians of the Galaxy and hopefully Star Wars, we're going to see a lot more interest in space opera come up uh, and sci-fi generally. If John Carter from Mars had been good... Uh, if Hercules was good, or if any of these, like, Conan, if Conan was good, we'd mm-hmm. see more fantasy. Right now, Game of Thrones is driving a fantasy train, and Hollywood can't ride its coattails yet. But, like, we could very easily have a fantasy revolution, too, which would drive a lot of people to D&D. I can get a ton of people to play role-playing games based on Game of Thrones. So the more genre fiction that we see... Uh, around us, the better for this. My problem with John Carter uh, on Mars was that he went to Mars. The first 15 minutes of that movie when he was on Earth was awesome. I would have watched a whole two hours of that character, but the moment he went to Mars, I was done with that. That's My interesting. problem with that movie is he looked dumb when he jumped. Jumped. <laughs> <laughs> but that, again, that only happened on Mars. When he jumped on Earth, it yeah, was normal. true. definitely <laughs> true. <laughs> I would just like to point out that the key to Hollywood jumping on the fantasy train, murder hobos. Murder hobos. (laughs) Call us Hollywood. (laughs) Something Michael said uh, a couple minutes ago, there's the slight fear of the hobby becoming so popular, it just gets oversaturated. And there's Mm. so much being developed that we just get overwhelmed with a bunch of crap. We are living in an era of self-development, of independent games, of anyone being able to churn out a game pretty easily. Um, And you guys just came back from a convention that, if I understand correctly, specifically caters to doing this. Mm -hmm. Am I wrong? 
That that right. is correct. Metatopia is a game design festival that's held annually in Morristown, New Jersey, and it is the best convention experience that I have ever had, certainly. I loved Metatopia so much, and I want so many more conventions like it. But I gotta say, as about as far as getting oversaturated with crap, that's everything. Most of everything is crap, and they, like there are plenty of crappy movies that get made. There are plenty of crappy YouTube videos that get made. YouTube is a great example. It's full of so much crap. But that doesn't stop people from spending hours of their lives. And people, I'll point this out. You are going to die. You only get to do this once. But you are wasting your life on YouTube right now. <laughs> and James uh, is on the soapbox. Yeah, well, well, I mean, so, but it's not going to stop games, you know? Well, so the, the other thing about that, I don't know. If you look at music, there's a fear of a lot of crap drowning out potential good, right? But I think that that has a lot to do with the fact that the music industry got to establish itself before the time of internet and a lot of other things that enabled people who didn't have an uncle in the industry to, to get seen. With things like Metatopia specifically existing that are teaching people how to make games, encouraging new minds to infiltrate and just create and get stuff into a position where people see it that aren't being sourced by, like, wizards... Uh, mm -hmm. Not that there's anything wrong with wizards. We're we're not we're not beholden to quarterly you know reports and blah blah blah. Where so indie I don't see as a bad thing. I get that there's a lot of crap out there, but I'm more concerned about voices being drowned out in favor of something being pushed on people rather than people having to wade through stuff to find things that they really like. Yeah. I mean, it's not hard to find things that you like. There are plenty of forums where people will yell at each other all day about what is worth spending time on and what isn't. Uh, I think it's actually really easy to navigate, and you know the the cream does sort of float to the top. It's just whoever is producing those games has to have the dedication to make sure it gets out there. If you give up, that good game is not going to reach anybody. Uh, so that's what I'll say. Uh, don't worry about whether or not something is good or bad. Try hard and dedicate yourself to ideas that you believe in. There you go. That's a motivational T-shirt right there. We are just we are covering we're covering the merchandise basing here uh, in, in this in this show. We've we've gone from TV and movies. We've got T-shirts. Man, we're just killing it tonight. We used to trademark the hell out of everything. Really curious because I. Just like anyone who has ever GM'd a game, I like to dabble in game design, whether I'm just making house rules, whether I'm making up something new. So what was Metatopia? Was it just lessons? Was it seminars? Was it you guys sharing your game with other people? Oh, okay. So the focus of Metatopia is playtesting, which is fa fantastic. There are like two ways to come to the con, either as a designer or developer where you're testing your game, or as a general audience, or a, a, as a playtester who can, for a cheaper ticket price, come to the con and just playtest a lot of games. Uh, also, developers are encouraged is too light a word that it's it's really it's mandatory for you to not only playtest your own game, um, or to to what you, to yeah, show your own game, but playtest other people's other developers' games to give them you know inside developer feedback. Uh, there are also panels there that discuss uh, everything from like 
the finer parts of editing and rule design uh, to, like, how do I kickstart, to, uh, I've been thinking about a game, but I don't even know if I really want to commit to this life, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, uh, Metatopia has, a, Ken Height described it as sort of a corporate retreat for the game industry, where, you know, we don't really have a large corporation of people, but, you know, everybody who designs games is sort of affiliated in some way because you're either playing somebody's game or, you know, you're making a game that somebody else plays. There's a lot of camaraderie in the industry, and people all come together at Metatopia to drive those innovations. Uh, Jason Morningstar uh, told me that he played a game, a LARP, where you role-played a rock. Like... (laughs) Awesome. <laughs> so, like, there's a lot of crazy ideas flying through there and really interesting ideas that are that are moving around there. I, I think uh, Metatopia is something there. If you are thinking of getting into game design, or better yet, let's say you're already in game design, you're working on something, Metatopia is something that you should go to just to remind yourself of why you love this and that everything that you're going after is possible. That's what it's there for. It's there to help people innovate those games and help you get to where you need to go. It's also worth saying that it's not just role-playing games by any stretch. It is LARPs, uh, it's board games, it's card games, it's any type of analog game. Now, so you guys, you've been working on Epiphany for how long? How long has it been in development? A year and some change, a little bit younger than one shot by probably like a couple weeks was it younger than one shot i thought it was just a little bit older older? yeah but but like it's like october it's it's in my evernote somewhere (laughs) so but but you guys are pretty far along the path so was there anything that happened at this convention that was an epiphany about the the game anything that changed drastically or anything that you're going to have to you know move around because of that in your experience Indeed. Uh, There are a couple mechanical things. Uh, Definitely, the game is separated into three acts, and what we found in playtesting at the convention uh, with people who know how to play role-playing games, that act one was jamming up the game. It wasn't moving as quickly as it needed to, uh, whereas acts two and three moved at a pretty nice clip. So we found that we needed to adjust our mechanics to allow act one to flow more easily. So we're in the process of adding that to our packet right now. As soon as we make those adjustments, we're going to move to beta, and that's where we're getting down to brass tacks and a lot more finicky mechanical adjustments. Uh, There's also, right now, Epiphany operates on a scoring system for some of the parties involved. We're not sure if that's going to stick around or not, and part of the public beta is going to help us figure that out. That all had to do with um, some people saying that the game didn't need to have a competitive aspect, which really surprised James and I because we kind of assumed that it needed to have one of those when we made the three the three GMs. We thought it would keep the three GMs engaged. And uh, at the con, it was kind of split on people who either really thought that it did best without or uh, needed that. So we're really working that one out. It's, it's a cool question. And we're going to turn to uh, people that we hope will play the game for the answer. Uh, That's what the public beta is all about. We're very, very soon going to put together a packet that we will have available for download at oneshotpodcast.com where people will be able to download it, uh, play it, and then share their thoughts with us directly 
about you know what they like about it, what they don't like about it, and I'm sure we're going to get tons of conflicting information. And part of this playtest is going to be Cat and I weeding through and deciding you know what's universal, what's important. But all of those are going to show up in the final product that hopefully we're going to put on Kickstarter and turn into a real thing. Now, have you guys in, uh, done any investigation yet as far as like what you're like what you'll be shooting for as a goal, what your production costs would be, or anything like that, or is that future? Uh, yeah, I don't know. We've done a lot of Kickstarter stuff, so it all comes down to we need to know our page number and we need to get some art quotes. You basically we need to have the book made, and then we can get an accurate uh, an accurate goal. I, that's the only way I'd ever build a Kickstarter is to know exactly how much money you need. I don't want to guess. Yeah, yeah, it's it's not good to speculate. I I think hopefully you know it depends it depends on a lot of things right now. Uh, so I don't even want to do conjecture and hope. Yeah. Uh, right now I'm focused on uh, making sure that people know about the game before Kickstarter is a concrete idea. I want to I want people to go oh yeah Epiphany I've heard of that thing before they, and like have the opportunity to play a portion of it before they actually decide whether or not they want to commit money to it. Alright, so with the playtest moving into beta, um, I'm assuming that that is that this is not just going to be a presentation of the rules. Uh, are you guys going to give us some different scenarios and story elements to work with for experimentation? Yeah, we we are, actually. Uh, we're not giving out the whole game that allows you to create a lot of the different elements in the game. We're giving you the bare bones that you'll be able to play with and run through specific scenarios. Uh, we've got two scenarios. Uh, Kat, you want to take the banker one, and I'll take, uh, I'll take Billy? Absolutely. Yep, yep, yep. Something that we like about Stranger Than Fiction is that it takes someone who uh, isn't all that much of a jerk but just hasn't really fully embraced life and pulls him out of his shell. I think a lot of gamers kind of need that. It's something cool that happens around the table, but doesn't necessarily happen in other areas of their life. Uh, so the banker is someone who plays by the rules, has a cushy job at a bank, and his bosses just come to him with the request to foreclose on a library, because that's a thing that's happening all the time these days. Uh, yeah, right. When he goes to the library, however, the, the way that we've set it up, something happens, and my preferred uh, historical thing for it is that he's transported back in time, only within the library, to the height of the, the library's grandeur. Um, so the, the hobbled old woman who is the, the uh, librarian that he's foreclosing on was once a beautiful, lively, thriving person who helped inspire a town to literacy. So he gets to just get wrapped up in that world. The second scenario, uh, we also love games where somebody's, or m movies, where somebody's a dirtbag, and uh, they either get their comeuppance or get turned around. So we turn to the spirit animal of the game for inspiration, and that of course is Bill Murray. And it takes place in an alternate universe where Groundhog Day is the most popular film of all time. And Bill Murray has grown to resent it. And every year at the Groundhog's Day Festival in Puxatawney, they try to get him to show up as, you know, like a celebrity figure. And finally, he is 
you know, uh, hounded into doing it against his will, he shows up at the Groundhog Day Festival and finds that when he wakes up, he relives the same day over and over and over again. There, we playtested that a lot at Metatopia. Ken Height, who was a guest on the show and is a game designer of some note, played played Bill Murray in that scenario, and gosh, it's a lot of fun. We <laughs> figure if we're going to put Groundhog Day on the package, we might as well let people play Groundhog Day. Oh, yeah. And one, one thing I wanted to mention is that I've noticed from listening to your, your podcast, specifically One Shot, obviously you guys love movies because a lot of times when you're role-playing, you actually use the terminology from movies to like set the scene. There's been times mm. where you talk about the camera zooms in and, and you'll talk about the, the, the looking at the camera. So, I mean, do you guys study film or is that you just love movies? Because I've noticed a correlation. We love stories. Uh, and the, the narrative, hmm. I guess Can since we're working... Kat and I know more about comics. We know way more about comics. Um, but it's weird to describe things in terms of panels. People aren't as used to that as they're used to hearing about movies. And uh, we're purely audio at this point, so we need something to describe the physical. Uh, it, I guess a lot of camera shots do come into it. And I think that might actually be partially role-playing games' influence on us. A lot of things that we read encourage you to, to think of things in terms of scenes and set camera angles. Yeah, and I will say you can tell we're not film students because we use the word pan for everything. Yeah, we don't. Uh, we have no idea. Let's play it pan is an actual term that means something, <laughs> and it does not mean the things that we think it means. <laughs> I do not think that word means what you think that word means. <laughs> well, that is certainly uh, another element of just having fun. So. Who cares what the word means? That's right. <laughs> exactly. Who cares? Who cares? Well, one of the things I would like to mention is that I did do a little bit of research here. We are what? not known at the RPG Academy for being hardcore investig- invest- investigating journalists. Ugh. Yeah, I covered really you well. You did it. There. You did it. I pulled it out. Um, but we do a little bit of investigating. And uh, and something came up in my searches here about uh, some secret archives. Excuse me? I, I'm just going off the, the material here that I've studied. Where did you get that information? Yeah. That is um, classified. Who, who's, who told you to say that? Who well, told I, I, you to say that? I thought we were... Ha- I didn't realize that I was going to get attacked and ambushed. I didn't realize that's the sort of thing that you James, guys did over here. James, James. I got this. We can neither confirm nor deny the existence of a secret archive. That is Do all we have to work. say on the matter. For the for the record, Cat was winking at me when she said that. <laughs> you can't see it, but she did. Do not look for the secret archive. It it does not exist. It does not exist. There is no secret clue in episode seventy three of One Shot to find it. I don't know where these are coming from. I don't know why anybody would think that campaign is going to tie into it in some way that will help you put clues together and lead you to a secret archive because there is no secret archive full of hours of material that we have not released to the public. That's insane. Insane. Well, I do apologize. I will have a stern talking to with my source and I will no longer supply him with Name your source. Who is your source? I, I'm not at liberty to say. But Did there's... you use Bing again? I've told you not to do that. <laughs> Bing? Probably, no, no. Maker. 
No, I, I, I've, I've left off dealing with Mr. Crosby. You know how to keep it from Microsoft, that's how bad you're doing. <laughs> that Bing Crosby was the first person that Cat thought of. No, not me. Yeah. I said the decision maker. That's actually Microsoft's thing. Is it? Yes, no. it's a decision-making engine. It's I, terrible. It's I could a have sworn, marketing campaign. I could have sworn that Bing was... Uh, that, that was Bing Crosby's, the decision-maker. Right. Oh, boop, boop, boop. Oh, boop, boop. Again, as, as I started at the beginning of the, of the show, I am a huge fan of everything you guys have done. So, so anything that I say comes from a place of love. Hmm. But I, I would be remiss if I did not take the opportunity with Cat Murphy on my screen here to ask, how did you play in an episode of One Shot where you played Velma and you did not say jinkies one freaking time? Did I really not? Oh, no, I was waiting, anticipating for the moment when jinkies would come out and it never did. Ah, uh, that's terrible of me. I'm so sorry. I love her so much. I'm also gonna, I'm gonna, how about I lob some at James that I don't feel that we really had any jinkies moments. That it was a very. You know what? That was, yeah, that was, that one, (laughs) I was managing uh, JPC and Nick (laughs) a lot on that one. There was a moment where Scooby was packing heat. That was a jinkies moment. Uh, yeah, no, no. I, I, I take full full heat on that. That's uh, Maybe one day James will give me the opportunity to redeem myself because well, I... Yeah, we're definitely going to play Scooby-Doo again, Kat. Chris has already said that he wants in on it, so we're, like, it's guaranteed I'm not, I have 100%. to fight him for Velma. He's going to have to fight him for Velma. He loves her as much as me. Well, as oh, I normally no. do, I, I derail conversations. So, Caleb, do you have any last words here? Any last questions for uh, James and Kat about Epiphany or about their many growing, awesome podcasts? Well, we always have our RPG Academy closer question. Uh, but I feel before we get to that, we should uh, allow James and Kat to have free reign to plug and mention all of their various projects, which we are all great fans of. Of course, we'll put links and everything in the notes and on the website, but Go ahead and throw it out there to our listeners. Whew. Well, I guess it all started with one shot. <laughs> it comes out every Monday in the morning. Uh, so you will be able to tune in every week on Monday for one shot. The one that I'm managing alone right now, but soon it's going to be co-managed with Cat, is called Critical Success. And that is a podcast which we didn't talk much about, but that is specifically about GMing advice and it's sort of ballooning out into game theory and industry talk as well. But the core of it is GMing advice. And that comes out every other Thursday. And then I don't believe James really explained what a one-shot is to, to anyone who hasn't heard it before. Yeah. That it's, a, it's an actual play podcast where we play one-shots with uh, Chicago improvisers, comedians, notable nerds, uh, generally cool folks. One-shot being, you know we sit down and record in one session and then we might release as a series of episodes. But they're contained adventures within different systems. It's really about exploring a lot of different systems and seeing what you can do with different types of gameplay. Its sister podcast uh, releases every Wednesday and is called Campaign, which does the opposite of that. Campaign is all about long-form gaming. I run that one, or I, I, I host that, that one. Um, it takes place in the Edge of Empire role-playing system. Uh, James is one of my players. And then I also have uh, two 
pretty two one-shot regulars of no small renown, uh, JPC and Johnny, uh, who are some really cool Chicago improvisers. Yeah. Good guys. And speaking of improv, I have another podcast that doesn't really tie into gaming as <laughs> much. Uh, but it is called the Overshare Podcast, where a lot of the improvisers that you hear on one shot get together and do improv as an audio form. So if you have run out of role-playing podcasts to listen to, if you're finished up with uh, RPG Academy, if you've finished up with one-shot campaign and critical success, then there is just plain old improv, which uh, is definitely a sister art form to role-playing. Oh, you're finally done. I, oh, yeah, I, I, co-host that. I co-host that with Alex Manich. I'll point we, that out. We could also, I don't know, James, we could, we could like, mention Alley Cat. You still got a stake in that. Yeah, I still have some money in there. Uh, if you're in Chicago, Alley Cat Comics is objectively the best comic book shop in the city. <laughs> James I mean, is a part owner, and we helped start it up. It's a really, really cool place to be. So the short and long of all of that is... When you want more James and Cat, you have way more than you can possibly ever hope to handle. Too much. Way too much. Uh, yeah, and you can always uh, talk to us directly. You can tweet me on Twitter at OneShotRPG. Or uh, you can hang out with me on either Tumblr or Instagram at Cat Murphy is Magic. Man, th- this, this show is pretty cool because we're telling everyone to leave our website and go everywhere else and never return. You need to listen to them together to get the whole point. You're going to wake up and realize what the meaning of life is if you listen to both of our shows. Mm -hmm. But we are not affiliated with this secret archive that doesn't exist. Like, we are not involved. We're bringing it up. Yeah, they're definitely not a part of it. The secret archive doesn't exist because... It just it just doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. It just, it just doesn't. I'm sorry I brought it up. Michael, we got Jinkies. them all down. It. We let them promote everything. We gave them all that free advertising. Name your you source. Went... You name your source. <laughs> <laughs> all well, right. Well, let's wrap this train wreck up. <laughs> the wheels came off a long time ago. All right. Oh, no. uh, we, we like to close every interview we do with a special guest with a special... RPG Academy closer question, uh, and that question for both of you, James and Kat, what is the one piece of advice that you would choose to give to a brand new role player or role playing GM? Uh, mine is simple. Uh, it is find ways to say yes to your players. If your player asks to do something, they are straight up telling you what they're interested in. If you find a way to incorporate that into your game, then the players are going to lead the game where it needs to go, and they're going to enjoy themselves on the way. And then you just find ways to have fun by yourself working within their desires. Cool, that's great. Uh, That covers half of what I wanted to say, and uh, also I can have a counterpoint. That works perfectly, but but if you're doing a long-form campaign, please also work in a story that's going to surprise and delight your players outside of their own personal quest. Absolutely fulfill those quests and work those quests into your larger story. But if you're not surprising and delighting them, I don't know why you're even doing a long-form game. You see, it's easy, first-time GMers, uh, just to surprise and delight people. That's all you have to do. 
<laughs> it really boils down to our motto, tell good stories as well as you can. Yeah, definitely. Fantastic. Well, uh, for me, Kat and James, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate our conversation. We didn't quite stay on Epiphany as much as we planned, but I, I thought it was a very enjoyable conversation. I'm looking forward to getting this episode out. And um, once you get around to having the beta, please make sure that Caleb and I know about it. We will promote that as well. We will participate as well if we can. And uh, I look forward to listening to you on your mini, mini podcast. Gosh, thanks. <laughs> this was so much fun to do. Yeah. Thank you really for having us on. This is great. Yeah, this was a wonderful experience. And we'll have you on to one of the shows soon. Yeah, definitely. That would be, I'm hilarious and I do great Jamaican accents. He's <laughs> <laughs> <Even> lying. <laughs> Only about one of those. I'm not very funny. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for attending the RPG Academy and listening to our podcast. We do this out of love for the hobby and for you, our fans. This podcast and site content will always be free for you to enjoy and utilize. But we do have expenses related to the show. If you'd like to help out in any way, please visit patreon.com slash the RPG Academy and check out the rewards we are providing for your monthly pledges. We will use all funds that come in to improve the show and give you better content and quality. And if you don't have the coin to spend, don't worry. You can still help us out numerous ways. One, you can subscribe to our show on iTunes, or you can leave us a five-star review on iTunes or on Stitcher Radio. Also, if you clear your cookies and then visit Amazon or DriveThruRPG through our portal, we get a kickback from your orders, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. Just like an RPG, our site works best with open lines of communication. We love talking with our listeners about everything. Please contact us with any questions, concerns, and comments you have. We also love to hear feedback and experiences from your own games. You can email us via podcast at vrpgacademy.com, or you can reach us on social media such as Facebook and Google+. We are there under the RPG Academy. But Twitter is usually the fastest way to reach us. You can find my favorite co-host, Caleb G, at... The Caleb G. And you can find my favorite co-host, Michael, at The RPG Academy. Thanks for listening. And as always, if you're having fun, you're doing it right. <laughs>